spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa along that journey. Ustad Tariq Amir grew up in a family that was part of the Nation of Islam and then made the transition to Sunni Islam with Warathin Muhammad. His own journey began with the Muslim Students Association at Morehouse, a historically black men's college in Atlanta. Once he started on his path, he was able to learn how to read Arabic in one week and began studying part-time. He would eventually follow the path of his teacher, Ustad Jamaluddin Haysa, to Tareem Yemen. He is currently a prison chaplain with the New Jersey Department of Corrections and a student at Bayan Islamic Graduate School. Listen as he gives a rich and detailed description about living and studying in Hadramaut, Yemen, and learning from teachers who exemplify prophetic character. He also talks about his important work as a prison chaplain in giving da'wah to those who are incarcerated, a segment of society many of us rarely think about. نور المنازل يا محمد يا من خالق من نور ربه يا من سمي قبل يوله I was probably kind of like the typical American teenager and youth um, that just happened to be Muslim at the same time. Um, my parents, um, they came from uh, a typical African-American background in terms of Islam. So they were first to the nation of Islam. Then they transitioned out with uh, So they were always under his leadership. Uh, however, my father, he kind of had a, uh, I learned about this later on, uh, his uh, philosophy, so to speak. Um, he had kind of like a, I don't want to say hands-off approach to our Islam growing up, but he he felt that he kind of wanted us to uh, experience Islam, um, you know, kind of like from our own perspective and not be extreme any type of case. So he didn't necessarily uh, push religion very heavily, but like we still had like the basics of like real fast Ramadan and things like that. Um, but I didn't really start to learn about Islam like in a formal way until I actually got to college. So you know I always identify as being Muslim, but you know if I didn't tell you you wouldn't necessarily know how well besides the fact that I didn't work. <laughs> so you know that's uh you know, that's kind of like the short, uh, the short version of me growing up as a Muslim. You'd mentioned that in college you started to become a bit more religious. What inspired you to do so? So what actually happened to me is that when I first got to college, um, I actually met one of my, he, later on he became a very close friend of mine, um, but he was the first Muslim that I seen on campus. 
And so he was out at the Dawah table giving out Islamic pamphlets and things like that. So I just came up to him and I said, you know, Salaam Alaikum. And so he was like, oh, you're Muslim and, you know, these type of things. So he was telling me about the Muslim Student Association. He was telling me, you know, yeah, you should come out, you know, you know we'd love to have you and so on and so forth. So I was like, all right, I'll come. So what I did was that the day of the meeting, I remember this, uh, this always stuck with me. The day of the meeting, I went to the meeting, but I didn't actually go in. I stood at the doorway, and I made sure that no one could really see me. So I peeked in to kind of see what was going on, and like, you know, hear what people were talking about, and so on and so forth. And I just kind of said to myself, like, yeah, these people are a little bit too religious for me. <laughs> and I just left. Um, and I actually never went back to another meeting until I was a junior. So that was my freshman year. I had nothing to do for the most part of the student association until my junior year. However, I would have like, you know, and the thing is, the, the reason why I appreciate him so much, you know, the original person that invited me, uh, my good friend, he's actually living in Foley right now. But the reason why I appreciated him is that no matter what, he never tried to like push me to come again, nor did he kind of like try to make me feel kind of bad. I did see. So that was kind of like my initial phase into uh, into Islam in college. But then what happened was that I don't know. I don't want to say like you know I was kind of like because I've always had a respect for God. You know, uh, so you know I just didn't have a formal understanding of it. You know, my understanding of it was kind of like. The American, you know, approach to religion is like, you know, religion is something I do once a week, and the rest of the week, you know, I do it very consistently. So there was a point in time where I was just kind of like going back and forth. Like I remember, and I'm not going to the details of it, but I remember one time I was getting close to going back home to visit because I went to school in Georgia, so I would fly back and forth um, to visit family. And I remember one time. When I was coming about to fly back, I was with you know some other friends of mine in college, and they weren't Muslim, and they happened to be doing something that you know definitely religiously we should not be doing. And so like I remember like consciously making the decision that you know I'm about to fly tomorrow, and so I don't want to necessarily be on God's bad side when I'm about to fly. <laughs> so you know what? I'm going to make sure that I'm not doing this. So like that's kind of like where I kind of was. It's just like, you know, in general, I just didn't want to take a chance with God, so to speak. Then there were, I could probably say, two main people who kind of, like, you know, gave me kind of like a different perspective on Islam. One gave me a perspective of, like, you know, being Muslim, I could still, you know, for lack of a better term, quote, unquote, be cool. And then the other one, he gave me more of a perspective of, like, no, you can actually really take this religion seriously. And so the first person was another good friend of mine. Um, he's actually a, a councilman in Cleveland right now. Um, he was a person who, he was one of those people that I always kind of say he had a prophetic characteristic that I don't see in many people, where like being around him, you would almost think that you were his best friend, even though you were probably number 100 50 something on the list, you know, type of thing. Meaning that, you know, he just had that personality where, like, you know, he can make anyone, you know, feel like they were, like, you know, the closest person to him. And he was very popular. Uh, the school that I went to in uh, Georgia, I went to Morehouse College. And so the thing that 
um, area, you have three colleges. It used to be four, but now it's primarily three that are right next to each other. You have Morehouse, you have uh, Clark Atlanta, and then you have Spelman. So these three colleges, they call it the AUC, which is the Atlanta University Center. So um, he actually, the reason why I have to give you this little background is because he actually almost won Mr. AUC. So meaning that out of all these three colleges, he was a finalist for being like Mr. AUC, which was well, not necessarily not a small feat, you know, in that uh, you know in that large environment. He also was uh, heavily involved in like poetry and things like that, and like you know everyone loved his poetry and so on and so forth. But at the same time, as he had like this popularity around the campuses, he was also one of the people that you know if he knew that you were Muslim and he saw you. There's no way that you were going to get past him without you know, acknowledging your Islam, so to speak. So, like, you know, he's the one that would be, for example, like if we're on the campus walking around, he sees you, and he's going to yell at you, Salaam up. And, like, you know, some of us, we might just be like, all right, well, like, Salaam, or like, something like that. But, like, you know, if you didn't acknowledge him, he would make sure that you acknowledged him and you acknowledged your Islam. Like, you know, he was not one for a person to kind of, like, you know, not, you know, be. Yeah, you know, yeah, not to be proud of Islam. So, like, you know, that was one uh, one situation. And you know, I remember, you know, and it's just a funny story because, like, you know, he had that sense of, like, you know, you know, that sense of pride in his Islamic identity. I remember one time. This was later on when I started to become more active at the Muslim Student Association and the Muslims around campus. I remember one time there was a brother that we knew. Happens to have the same name as I do, and um, he has some issues because the, the school that we went to it was actually in one of the worst neighborhoods uh, in Atlanta. Uh, and the funny thing is, is that uh, it was a predominantly African American uh, school. So I remember, like on campus, when something would happen, like a robbery or something like that would happen, they would put off these. Uh, uh, these uh, flyers to get, try to get information. And I remember one time, my roommate, who wasn't Muslim, you know, we went to the, the change machine and we saw one of the flyers and it said, like, you know, um, uh, something like, you know, robbery happened last night, you know, suspect was a, you know, black male between the ages of 18 and 22, last seen wearing blue jeans and a white shirt, between the height of, like, you know, 5, 10, 6 foot. You know, if you have any information, you know, please let us know. And me and my roommate just kind of looking at each other like, Really? It's like, you know, so you're a suspect, I'm a suspect, he's a suspect, he's a suspect. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, do you not realize where you're at? <laughs> so we were jokingly saying, kind of like, you know, you might as well just say, look, someone got robbed last night. If you know something, let us know. <laughs> but uh, a friend of ours, he was having some issues uh, himself. Um, so what happened was that this other friend of ours, his name was Bashir. Bashir was the one who was uh, this Mr. Popular around the campus, so to speak, the Muslim popular guy. Uh, but, you know, Bashir, uh, he had did the Jummah Khutbah that day uh, on campus, and he was like, you know, look, we're going to meet out, you know, we're going to meet at his house to you know, make sure that nothing happens. So we're like, okay. So a bunch of us, we agreed, like, we're going to get together, we go to his house, you know, just, his house just to make sure that nothing happens. So we all meet 
in the parking lot outside of the campus. And so we're all wearing like, you know, jeans and sweatshirts and you know, these type of things. Like just in case something actually does happen, like we see Bashir walk out. Bashir is wearing a black throat and a black sweatshirt. And like and I think he might have had a on too. And we were all just kinda of look at him like Bashir, why are you wearing a throat? And the first thing that comes out of Bashir's mouth, he's like dead serious. Like, you know, absolutely like he's not, he's not about his smiling, nothing. He's dead serious. Like, they got no muscle. <laughs> so we're just kind of like, okay. Still, he's left it alone. But, like, that was the kind of personality he had. So, like, that was like, it's like, you know, someone that I could see that, you know, he was, you know, yeah. Living like you know, just like you know, many of the you know, the way that you know the rest of us were going through life and so forth. But he had a strong sense of his Islam, and so that was like a very uh, influential uh, thing for me. The next one was I had met my first teacher. You know, my mother-in-law. She, you know, came up all the time. Me and my mother-in-law we had a conversation sometimes. I had a conversation with my mother-in-law, and she had said to me. She said that, you know, there's always something special with the first teacher. So I was talking to her about, you know, my first teacher stuff I saw. So when I first met him, he was kind of like one of the first people that I've seen that, you know, could relate to kind of like, you know, me or like other youth and things like that, but also like, you know, could quote hadith and also said them at the same time. And then like, you know, could, you know, teach you about, you know, fiqh and aqidah and, you know, these type of things and, like, you know, so, like, you know, he just, like, kind of really impressed me. I was just kind of, like, you know, I've never been around someone, like, that kind of, like, can combine both worlds. Like, these two were kind of, like, you know, the main ones to kind of, like, make them become a little bit more serious, you know, about the religion. So, from that point, it was about my junior year where I started to uh, say, you know, in particular, I think what happened was that Basim Bashir had just did a poem uh, assembly and, like, you know, he lost the competition, so the oratory competition. He came in, like, second place, something like that. But, like, it was one of those situations where, like, you know, he came in second place, but, like, if you were to ask the audience, he should actually like, I'm not saying that you know, based upon, like, you know, him being Muslim or me knowing him, but, like, you know, I had other people that were not even Muslim saying, like, you know, he should have won. But, like, I remember, you know, that kind of, like, made me kind of, like, want to be around him a little bit more. But then, you know, what also happened was that this also, these things also started to happen around Ramadan. And so, like, you know, as many Muslims will say, like, you know, I've heard many different people's stories and a lot of times like Ramadan is like always within that within the story. And so like this also started to happen around Ramadan. And so, you know, I started to try to go to the Muslim the Muslim Student Association more. Uh, I actually met Bashir's uncle, uh, who's actually, you know, kind of popular a little bit diplomatic uh, from Brooklyn. Uh, so you know that Malik came around and he gave a, a talk and then we went in the uh, just talk with him privately and so on and so forth. So that was another influence and then when we 
daughter because it was from a dog and you know, more of a social coming around and so we would have you know, these different uh, gatherings with each other and so on and so forth. And it's the first time that I actually read through the entire Quran, you know. Uh, and so like pretty much kind of like once I got into that, it just became a thing. It was like I just kept wanting to be around. So like, for example, like now I started to become like an active member of the NSA, the Association Association, but I wasn't on board. So what that meant was that I could go to the meetings, but like when they had their like little board meetings and stuff like that, I wasn't necessarily invited. So I kind of like started to kind of like treat my way into those type of things until eventually um, when uh, one of the board, one of the people on the board, I forget what happened. Uh, he had to leave for some reason or whatever it is for me. So I ended up taking the position that he had. Um, that's when I became more active. You know, now I'm attending more Islamic lectures and um, going to different Islamic events, you know, so on and so forth. So eventually what happens is that my junior year ends and now I've just become like, you know, extremely active in the MSA. And like, you know, the MSA is just like, you know, that kind of saved me from transferring because actually I was, my sophomore year, I was really serious about leaving Georgia. Homesickness, and you know, I need to. You know, I wasn't feeling being in the country, and it seemed like you know, all my other friends were back in New Jersey, we were having ball and so on and so forth. So it's just like, you know what, I'm about to be. But it's like the MSA kind of like kept me from going back. Like, I just fell in love with the MSA. Um, and this is kind of like one of my other, one of my other good friends. He's like, you know, I consider him to be like you know, my, uh, my sheikh before I had a sheikh. Uh, but like, you know, he used to always like to say how like, you know, the MSA like saved a lot of our lives. Because like, you know, I remember like, you know, Bashir used to always kind of say, it's like, you know, if you would have looked at us our freshman year, and looked at us you know, the time we graduated, it's like, and it's funny because my grandfather, he actually has a photo album of like, my graduation from college. But in the beginning of it, he has a picture that my mother took in my freshman year, when we're kind of walking into the auditorium when we first got there. And then he has another picture that my mother took when I graduated, so I'm going out to the auditorium. And like any, like, you know, when I first seen it, I was just, I just kind of, I was like, those are two completely Like the way that I walked in is definitely not the way that I walked out. So my junior year ends, and what happens is that it's because of like, you know, the frantic, hectic aspects of, you know, finals and people getting ready to go home and so on and so forth, the MSA ends, but we don't have a president. So eventually what happened is that uh, eventually I said that, okay, I'll do it. Because we really couldn't get anyone else to commit to it. So like, it was just kind of funny because like if you'd asked me my freshman year if I ever thought that I'd be the president of the Association Association, I'd be like, are you kidding me? I can't even go to the meetings. I'm not going to end up being the president. And so my senior year, I ended up being president. That year, I also started to um, become closer to the individual that I said was like, kind of like my sheikh before, you know, before I had a sheikh type of thing. Um, he, his name is Atiba, and he was one of those individuals that I was actually I was actually afraid of when I first met him. I mean, like, every time I was around him, I just kind of felt like I had to be on my best Islamic etiquette, like, you know, okay, you know, if I had something in my hand or something like that to eat, it's like, no, he's halal. <laughs> there's, there's nothing, 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 noth
it's just like you know, you just kind of like you know foot uh, out that persona of you know, timid because like you know, get into his car he's always playing Quran or something like that and so what happens is that Atiba calls me at the beginning of my senior year because I, uh, he was able to actually get money to purchase a house in Atlanta but it wasn't a house for him to live in he was purchasing the house to start an Islamic school uh, not an Islamic school but as like after school program uh, so what he did was that he called me and he asked if, because I was the president at the time, he asked if I would be willing to come to volunteer and if I could get some of the other you know, Muslim students to come volunteer. So I did that. Um, I went and volunteered, and so what happened was that it kind of, you know, it, it took away some of the fear aspect. Like he, he wasn't as scary. He actually was you know, human after all. But uh, so what happened is that he actually started getting me uh, to understand more formally about Islam. So because he had this place for that school program, at the same time he also had um, weekend classes for adults. So then he happened to have Ustajah Mali and I saw him teaching. So we started uh, attending the classes, and again, so that's kind of like when I started to start to understand like how vast you know, the religion you know, really is. Um, so that's when like you know, I first started you know, looking at the Fulani Fulani. First time I even heard anything about the Methab. You know, I was you know, in the beginning, I was just kind of like you know, quote 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 Sunnah. Like you know, what is this Methab business? So at this point in time, like you know, I was used to the Shafi. Imam Sarah and they're like the big, you know, the biggest names out there, so to speak. So, you know, Atiba and, you know, Ustad Jamal didn't really like mention formally about the aspect of Ahmed, but like, you know, Atiba would, you know, kind of tell me, like, you know, there's Ahmed have you know, aspect and so on and so forth. So I'm like, okay, about this Ahmed that thing, like, you know. But the thing is that she, like, I trust Atiba, so I'm like, all right. So one winter break, my senior, was my senior year, I went on winter break, and I got a CD from Imam Zaid um, talking about the concept of the And I listened to it, and I was like, hey, so that's what this all is about. And so, like, you know, after I came back, I was like, all right, um, you know, I'm, I think I'm fine with the concept of you know, studying the and so the first thing that Tiba does is that Tiba goes into his trunk and he's like here. And he gives me a copy of the Ramazan travel. You know, after I study studied Shabbat for years and so on and so forth. Like, that wouldn't be the first book that I guess someone has nothing, has no idea about that book like that. But he gives it to me and I'm just kind of like, okay. <laughs> you know, this is a lot of stuff to kind of try to digest. But, you know. So, like, when people ask me, like, well, how did you go study in the Shabbat school? That's how I go study in the Shabbat school. When I decided that, you know, I would think about studying as a method, I was given a copy of the Bantu Shabbat. But what happened also was that the study of the I saw also was Shabbat. So, when I found that out, I was just kind of like, well, that's a done deal for me. Then, if it was A, B, Shabbat, I was like, okay. <laughs> I was kind of hurt when I found that, that yeah. That, Sheikh Hamza was uh, a manikin, and so it's like, ah, uh, he was a chef for that. It's really silly about being a man, Sheikh Hamza. But, 
but so like this is kind of like you know what happens in the drama college years. So like I kind of like jumped it up a little bit because as I think about it, some of those things didn't necessarily happen in the exact order. But you know, basically, you know, what happened to me is kind of like you know what I always mention to people is that you know how most people come into Islam itself is that it wasn't necessarily from me like reading something or you know, something like that. It was more or less just me interacting with Muslims. Thank you, it was beautiful. How did you choose and decide you wanted to study sacred knowledge full-time? So, my choosing to study sacred knowledge full-time, I actually didn't necessarily think that I was going to take that route. Uh, there's another friend of ours, uh, his name is Emil. And I always credit Emil because I remember what happened one time is that uh, Atiba, Rafiq, uh, myself, and then uh, another good friend of ours, Emil, and I think Bashir might have been there that night too. We went to uh, the Atlanta Masjid because they had a, a, a Tatim program, just like a, no, they just had like an anti-cap program. And I remember what, what happened was that they were reading the Quran, but they were reading the Quran, of course, in Arabic. And so, like, they're going around passing the Quran. Everyone's reading the Arabic and the Quran in Arabic, and then, like, kind of like it's my turn. I was just like, hey, like, you have to, you have to, you have to skip me because I don't know how to read Arabic. So I remember that was just kind of like. A, like so what happened was that actually Emil, uh, Emil was getting ready to leave for his master's program because he was a year ahead of me. So he was you know, wrapping up his uh, situation in Georgia to get ready to leave for his master's. But before he did that, uh, he was still in Georgia, and so. He agreed that uh, he would come and pick me up so that we could go to Salat al Fajr together in the Masjid. And then after Fajr, he would sit with me to go over Arabic. And so we did that in terms of the Arabic anyway for about a week. This is why I always tell people, I was like, you know, integrally speaking, if you want to know how to read Arabic, you can learn how to read Arabic in a week. And I always say that because, you know, if I can do it now, because I'm not a very smart individual, so if I can do it, anyone can do it. But, you know, so that happened, so I learned the Arabic. Then, um, like I said, uh, Atiba had different programs that he was trying to get also. Said Jamal Adin was the, you know, the first teacher. However, after this, Sheikh Khalid al Rashid is actually the chaplain of Harvard right now. He was also he's originally from Atlanta. So this is actually right before he left Turkey, but he was there, so he was teaching as well. Um, and then this was actually the time where Sheikh Mohammed was at UCGP now. This is the time where he actually first came to Atlanta. So that's how, uh, so essentially kind of like uh, before they became well known, they were all at that this one time. So like, we were just like, and then the funny thing was is that like, Teachers, but like they're also like close to my friends. So, like, you know, the Sheikh Muhammad first moved to one of the, the, one of the houses that he had in Georgia. Is that you know, he invited us over to uh, you know, to recite Sultan Bakara and you know, uh, have dinner and stuff like that. So, like, you know, they were around. And again, like, you know, this was kind of like impressive to me. Like, you know, they're you know, reading Arabic, quoting Hadith, and you know, mentioning this illa and this, you know, this, that, and the other. But the thing is that I always felt kind of like a meal was going to be the one. 
to kind of like become the total and, and that's kind of like how all of us thought because like Emil was actually a convert but like you know, when he converted like he converted and like like took off running like you know so like you know he you know learned Arabic you know, really quickly because again he's the one that taught me Arabic so like you know he became Muslim and he just started like you know eating up anything that he can get his hands on so we always thought like you know Emil was going to be the one that's going to be off studying desert somewhere, you know, come back, shit, Hamil, whatever. And I had kind of the thought process of, you know, I'll just be a teacher, you know. But the problem that I had was that at this point in time, I was a junior, you know, or a senior in college. I had chosen the wrong major. I was an accounting major. And I didn't realize that I hated accounting until I was a junior. So, so that was problematic. So, but at the same time, my grandfather had funded the bulk of my uh, college education. He told me very clearly, he told me and my brother this, you know, my brother's working with me, but he told both of us, and he told my aunt and my father and so on and so forth, like, you know, look, I'm going to help you pay for your college, but you're not going to go here and, you know, mess around. And you're not on a six-year plan. So it's like, all right, I'm just going to keep on with, you know, the accounting plan. So what happened was that there was a program called Teach for America. It was a situation where they were looking for people who were willing to go and teach in uh, urban communities. So like, you know, that just kind of sounded good to me because I was like, all right, all right, I don't want to go into accounting, but, you know, I do think that teaching is you know, pretty good. So I went uh, and applied for Teach for America, uh, and I didn't even get past the first round. <laughs> They rejected me right off the road. <laughs> and, and this started to happen like after I graduated. Uh, so I went to, because I was living back at home with my parents, and we were living with my parents, they still live in Oak Ridge right now, so we were in Middlesex County. So I went to the Middlesex County Board of Education and was saying, okay, I'm interested in you know, becoming a teacher, but well, this is a process that I have to go through. They said, like, well, you know, with your major, um, the only thing that you'd be able to teach is business. So, like, you can you know, do that. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I don't want to teach business. So, I'm just like, you know what, forget it. So, what ended up happening is that the place that I internship with before, they, um, uh, they were willing to give me a position. They were willing to hire me uh, uh, for a position. Uh, and so, this point in time, like you know, my graduation present money and stuff like that was starting to run dry. Like it was, you know, I was going back to the broke college students. It was just like, I just need some cash. So, you know, I'm, I guess I'm going to just go to the corporate route. So, what happened was that at the same time, I was still in communication with like a stage one, and also Shake Group and Atiba. And so, you know, I started working and then the, the concept of possibly getting married you know, came about as well. So the funny thing is that Atiba had suggested a particular individual to me, and he's been suggesting to he was suggesting her to me since I was still in college. And uh, the thing is, is that at one point I said, okay, you know, let's see if you know if there be anything that happens, and she turned me down. I didn't know at the time that about 10 years later or however many years later that I actually ended up looking married here. 
but she did turn me down. And then another sister that I was possibly interested in marrying as well also turned me down. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, well, marriage is not really now. And then, you know, Nativa, like, I mean, I've always had kind of like an interest in like, you know, wanting to be able to study, like, I had that experience and stuff like that. But it's kind of like, you know, how I'm going to do it and so on and so forth. And then, like, you know, the main you know, thing that has to worry about is, like, how am I going to convince my mom? <laughs> but uh, so what happened is that I started working and I hated it. Uh, it was like, you know, uh, it was one of those things where it's like every day you wake up and it's like this, this is all that I have to do with my life. And but what happened is that as time went by, uh, between the stage of mom that I saw and TV, you know, they were kind of like giving me more and more encouragement the possibility and actually study the Catholic And the thing is, because I was with my parents, I was able to save a lot of money. I was able to save a significant amount of money. And so, the Stadium Hall, he had mentioned to us about Don Mustafa previously. Because we asked him, like, where did you study? And he mentioned Don Mustafa and Tareem. And, you know, when you look up Yemen and Tareem, it's like, you know, it's very expensive. Extremely expensive. Because, you know, there are like three main places that I would think actually study. It was either Tadim, uh, Syria, or Jordan. Uh, Syria was just kind of like out the question because that's when Syria started to be uh, It was already asked out before, but at this point it just like, there would be no way I could convince my parents to go to Syria. Like, that, was, that was definitely what uh, Jordan, which was a little bit something to go, but it was expensive. And even when I talked to my teachers, who was already living in Jordan, he actually said to me, there's nothing really set up yet here, so you won't be able to benefit as much. And that was another thing that kind of inspired me, was that this was when Sunni Path was still around, and this is before Sheikh Wallace had created Seekers Guide, so he was still, Sunni Path was like the big thing, so I had taken some classes on Sunni Path, and that's when I kind of got a taste for food, because I had studied with Sheikh Abu Karamali, and like he, because before I was like, but then, like, you know, when I started studying fifth, I was like, this is what I need to know. Like, you know. And then, like, it encompasses fifth and it encompasses Quran, so it's just like, you know, that kind of like got me wanted to you know, study that. And then, Shaking the Kamali happened to me at the time, Shafi, so I was just like, this is, you know, this is something I'm interested in. So, I started getting more and more excited about it, but it's just kind of one of those things, it's just like, is this really going to happen? So eventually what happened uh, is that I was talking to Atiba, and Atiba, and I like to call it the Bismillah of, is that, you know, Atiba is one of those individuals, like, we kind of have opposite personalities, which kind of, I guess, kind of balances, balances us out, is that, you know, Atiba is one of those individuals who's like, you know, just do it and worry about the details later. I'm one of those persons like, no, I need to plan this all out. And then, so like, Atiba, like, he was just like, look, do you have money to mail it overseas? He's like, look, just get a ticket, go, and then we'll figure out what we do then. And I'm just like, yeah, that's not, that's not feasible, that's not going So I got in contact with Gustav Jamal, and he got me in contact with some of the people over in the city and the McDonald's. So I, you know, contacted them, and eventually I said, you know what? Now, 
main issue was to tell my parents. My mother, she's very strategic. My mother's strategy is that if she doesn't want me to do something, but she doesn't necessarily say no, what she'll do is that she'll say, have you asked your father? Because she knows that my father has no problem saying no. So, like, and at this time, I'm like 22, 23, I'm still living with my parents, but I'm just kind of like, I'm an adult. I should just be able to say, I'm going to Yemen, and, you know, that would be it. But, you know, again, and this is actually before I had studied, you know, the rights of parents and Islam and so on and so forth. So, that, you know, from an Islamic standpoint, that is not the, the correct you know, approach or thought process. But, like, you know, this was still like my Western, you know, concept. It's like, I'm the adult, so I should be able to say, you know, I'm going, that's it. So, I tried to kind of like bring that, the, bring that kind of philosophy. So, I went to my father, he was named, he was in his room, and I was like, Dad, uh, I got an opportunity to go and study overseas, and I'm going to take it, and it took like, everything out of me, I was trying to say that, and my father just was kind of silent for a little bit, and he was like, I don't think you should but then I was like, and so I kind of walked back to my room, kind of feeling a little bit defeated, like, alright, I'm going to do this, and like, okay, Probably not even two minutes later, my father calls me back. He's like, So, what do you plan to do when you get back? Like, so, he starts to ask me, like, you know, what are my plans? Like, you know, how am I going to pay for it? What am I going to do when I get back? And, you know, these type of things. And so, eventually, he's like, Okay, you know, you, you, you think of it. However, my father, he's not going to look back on something that he's kind of giving me permission to do. But, like, you know, for example, one day, I forget how close I was to actually getting on the plane. My father, he gives me a Wall Street Journal news article where it talks about a mosque in Yemen that had just had a terrorist attack come to it. I'm just kind of like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> but you know, I remember I remember I had a conversation with Bashir. I had talked with Bashir and was telling him I was on the plane with the state and stuff like that. And Bashir, because Bashir also I have to say this properly, is that Bashir was like, you know, but just think about it. Even if you were to die, what better way would it be to die? Like, you're going to die seeking knowledge. So I'm just kind of like, all right. <laughs> and so, like, you know, eventually I just like, convinced myself, like, well, I'm just going to go. So that led me to hopping on a plane and going halfway across the world <laughs> to study in. What about the dream stood out to you? Was it your teachers at Dar Mustafa, the larger community? So, when I first got to Tareem, I had really no Arabic whatsoever. So my first and foremost thing when I went to Tareem was to try to accomplish, you know, the Arabic language. Uh, one of the imams in Georgia, he used to say to me, he said that um, as long as you rely on a translation, it's kind of like having never eaten an orange and having someone describe to you what an orange tastes like and so like that always stuck out to me and I was like you know I want to know what an orange tastes like so I want to learn Arabic so when I first got to Tareem this is before Habib Omar had switched the uh, the Tortib before he had switched the program um, the Arabic program was separate from the main school Dara Mustafa so when I first got there 
I actually studied in the Badr Institute. That's what the name of it was. So I was studying in Badr. However, partly through me being there, Habib Omar switched the uh, the tortib. He switched uh, the program, and he incorporated the Arabic program into uh, Dar Musafa itself. So my initial teacher was uh, a very you know beautiful man uh, from uh, from. Remember correctly, he is from Sudan, uh, by the name of Sheikh Muhammad, and he was like, you know, he was, you know, the greatest thing as far as I was concerned, and uh, you know, I was happy that he was my teacher, and you know, I felt that I was benefiting a lot from him. He had a lot of years of teaching people Arabic, and so I was very, you know, happy with him. However, once we moved into Dar Mustafa, um, then. Uh, they had decided to switch um, the program a little bit because we had to go off of Dar Mustafa's schedule, which was not the same as the schedule we were going on before. So then I ended up getting a new teacher, um, Habib Hashim bin Sahad. And if I were to be honest, initially I was upset. I was upset because I had gotten, you know, uh, I had gotten to, you know, I had developed a relationship with Sheikh Muhammad. So, like, you know, as far as I was concerned, that was my teacher. And, you know, I got used to his teaching style and everything, so I was actually upset. But the, the reason why it's kind of funny to me is that, you know, uh, by the time that I had came, was coming back to uh, coming back from Tareem, Habib Hashim became, like, one of the most beloved people to me out of all the people in Tareem. Um, so initially, um, I was uh, just focusing on trying to acquire the Arabic language and also studying fiqh. Uh, so what ended up happening is that when we moved into Badr, excuse me, when we moved into Dar Mustafa, um, Habib Omar had uh, set it up that along with our Arabic studies, that he wanted us to study um, basic fiqh. And so he started us out with a book that I had actually already studied with uh, Sheikh Hamza Kamali on Sunni Path, uh, Risat al-Jamia, um, which is like a very basic book in Shafi fiqh that is actually was initially written for children. And so Habib Omar wanted us to study that, but the caveat was that we had to study it in Arabic. So like we're, at least for me, like I'm still trying to learn Arabic, but now I have to also study fiqh in Arabic so it's like you know it was kind of a, a major learning curve and what made it so kind of like you know I don't want to say frustrating but kind of like because the, our teacher that was teaching us he did speak English but Habib Omar had told him he wants him to do it in Arabic so there was no uh, no English to be spoken and so it's like you know trying to pick it up and then also he had to have tests and stuff like that and I'm like I'm trying to write answers in Arabic and I'm just like uh, if this was just English I would you know probably pass this test with flying colors but uh, but then also at the same time um, a little bit later um, I had uh, another uh, one of the senior students uh, Sidi Amin Baxton um, he's in he's from uh, from the UK Scotland uh, actually Alhamdulillah, I just was recently able to meet up with him again uh, not too long ago. But uh, he also, uh, I was able to convince him to uh, give me some uh, some lessons. And so I was also 
going over you know, like basic nahu with him, uh, basic Arabic grammar, and then um, also I was able to convince him to um, teach me uh, another book in Shafi fiqh. Only that that didn't last that long because Habib Omar found out and said, "No, <laughs> we can't do it anymore." But um, I was also able to study um, another. Um, book in Shafi Fiqh on marriage with uh, my teacher uh, Ustaz Zain Abdo. Uh, he's uh, now based out of the UK as well, um, but he was one of the senior students. He had been there um, of like the more Western students. He was there like the second longest after Sheikh Abdul Karim Yahya. Uh, so I was uh, able. So Sidi Amin initially told me about the class, and so we were able to go and we studied. Uh, uh, the laws of marriage uh, according to the Shafi Madhab uh, and so I was able to study with him as well so primarily when I was there I was mainly studying between Arabic and Fiqh and then of course the aspect of Tazkiyah is kind of incorporated within the whole program of Dara Mustafa is that uh, you're going to you know the aspect of it is that you know if you're going to be learning these things then it should be bringing about some change like I remember after Asr, you always have what's called the Roha, which, um, like for example, uh, Amal Qasid uh, with Sheikh Yahya Rodis in Allentown, they, you know, Sheikh Yahya being one of Habib Omar's, you know, senior uh, students, you know, he mimics, you know, the program from Dar Mustafa. So, um, but in, in Tareem, they always have the Roha after Asr. Um, and so I remember one time um, Habib Omar gave a lesson after Asr. Um, uh, during the Roha, and I remember it was from um, a book called Kutukulub from uh, Abu Talib al-Makki, and he came to the portion where it talks about the benefits of using the miswak and the sunnah of using the miswak. Mm-hmm. And I remember how Omar has said something to me that has always stuck out to me to this day. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive me, and may Habib Omar uh, never hear this podcast. And even if he does, he doesn't necessarily speak fluent English, so you may not hear what I'm saying. But in any case, I remember him saying to all of us as students, he was saying that, um, all right, so we just learned about the merits and the benefits of using the miswak. So when you come to class tomorrow, if you don't have a miswak, then don't show up. Because he's saying, you know, what is the purpose of us going over this if you're not going to act upon it? And so I remember, like, you know, that was always something that stuck out to me. It's like, you know, and he was, like, really serious about it when he said it. Like, you know, if you're not going to have your miswak, then don't show up. Because you know, essentially, you know, you're wasting, you know, you're wasting your time. If you're, if you're learning about these things, then, you know, you need to implement them. You know, even, like, little things. Like, you know, for example, the sunnah of wearing whites on Juma. Like, you know, even to this day, like, you know, I always try to make sure that I'm wearing whites on Juma these type of things and so uh, so those were like kind of like the three primary things that were uh, taking place uh, in terms of my learning it was uh, Arabic fiqh and then the aspect of taskiyah um, then uh, in terms of like you know uh, when you were asking like you know what um, like was most significant for me I remember uh, Ustad Jamaluddin Haisal while I was there, and particularly like when I first got there, he asked me a question. You know, he said, you know, basically, you know, how am I finding it? You know, how's it, you know, been being there? And I remember I told him, I was like, you know, if you're talking about from the standpoint of like a, a dunyawi perspective, like a worldly perspective, then this is not the spot. 
like I remember when I first landed in Tarim because I had a struggle to get to uh, to Yemen because when I first went there there was a major storm and in particularly in Tarim it's the, the desert area so they're not used to getting rain for any uh, amount of time so it had rain for like three days not any like things significant but because it had rained for three days it caused massive damage so I couldn't even get to Tarim initially in the time that I was supposed to but I remember when I first uh, got to Yemen itself even in Sana'a that like I like walked out of the airport and I'm just kind of like I'm definitely not an American anymore <laughs> like you know it was uh, you know it's one thing like you kind of like look at something in a picture or like you know you see something in video it's a whole nother thing to actually be there and experience it it's like this is really like this like you know you're seeing mud houses and like you know things are you know uh, are not uh, as you know pristine as we would think it is, and like you know, uh, and I'm not trying to speak ill of you know uh, Yemen because you know I love uh, I have a strong love for Yemen, especially today. Uh, but I'm just saying like you know just from a worldly perspective, it's like completely different. Like you know, electricity goes out all the time. You know, internet. You know, you have to actually go to an internet cafe to you know, a lot of times use internet. Like it's getting they're getting more uh like i haven't been there in a, in a long time but you know so people have tell them have been telling me that you know those type of things are becoming you know more modern so to speak but you know again it still was like you know a completely different atmosphere from america so i was like from a really perspective you know uh, this will not necessarily be the spot so to speak however from a spiritual perspective i was like you know i don't know if there's a place better than this because it was just you know everything around you was about the religion like even like you know the the native people you know the, the the locals you know even they you know had a basic aspect of you know you know certain aspects of you know etiquette and akhlaq and so on and so forth like i always tell people it's like you know yemen yes it's one of the poorest countries you know it's considered to be the poorest arab country in the world but those are some of the happiest people i've ever seen in my life and like you know they are like more, some of the most hospitable people that you know you'll ever meet so it's like you know your whole day is kind of like a lesson in and of itself like you know you can get into a taxi cab and you may never know what you know might be said like i remember a quote that my teacher he always likes to say before ramadan comes about or even for Eid al-adha is that the the line of poetry is is that you know the Eid is not for the one that wears new clothes the Eid is for the one who increases in their obedience and so he was mentioning how like you know he initially got that quote from a taxi driver like it wasn't like something he picked up in class or something like that. he was driving the taxi and the taxi driver you know told him that uh, so it's like you know everything around you and then like you know the the closeness is like it really is kind of like the closest thing I could think of to like kind of like going back in time to like you know some of the times that like we kind of read about without actually getting in a time machine so to speak you know even like that close-knit you know Islamic environment but of course you know the person that stood out to me the most was you know uh, my teacher Habib Hashim bin Sahad and it was because of the things that happened outside of class not necessarily the things that happened in class and i was recently listening to a, a talk from someone else 
cool is mentioning the aspect of you know why the Prophet Sallam you know had emphasized the aspect of taking knowledge from the breast of men and not you know from you know books and things of that nature is because there's so many things that you learn just from being in a person's presence that you're not going to pick up just from reading a book and like you know so Habib Hashem you know he you know taught us like you know just basic you know things uh, just outside of the class like you know and he was one of those teachers who would you know uh, come down uh, I don't want to say like come down to our level so to speak because you know he's you know he's from the family of the Prophet Muhammad I said you know his grandfather is one of the teachers of Habib Omar and so like you know he has you know a high you know status but he would still like come to the restaurant across the street from Dar Musafa and sit down with us and have you know his his coffee and tea and like you know but he was like one of the most humble people I've ever met like I would sometimes offer him like you know I used to always get beans and roti when I used to go to the restaurant so I used to always you know see Habib Hashim like you know you know please have some and Habib Hashim would always you know, without fail just like take like the smallest piece that he could of the bread and like dip it in to the uh, the beans just like barely and he would just say the baraka you know just for the baraka you know just the aspect of like you know me offering to him like you know but he wasn't really trying to you know partake of it and just like you know even the ways that he would get mad sometimes and like it wasn't a thing of like you know because he would get mad like i only really seen him like really really upset once but it was f for us and not himself so it's like that aspect of like kind of like seeing certain the prophetic characteristics but seeing it in a living person that you know uh that you know can be your example you know even to this day i haven't talked to him in a while but even to this uh even to this day when uh, uh cd yusuf welsh came back i had to make sure that i got you know Habib Hashim's phone number again and then when i seen uh cd amin again i made sure that he uh, gave me Habib Hashim's number and then you know there's another of the habai up there Habib tahir Habib tahir actually ended up being my roommate for a little bit because when i went to sanaa when I first arrived from America to Sana'a, because this is uh, previously when you can fly into Sana'a, you can't do it anymore from what I've been told. But I flew from Saudi Arabia to Sana'a uh, because I couldn't get over to what's called um, Seyun, which is the other airport that you fly to, and then you drive from Seyun to Tarim. So we couldn't get to Seyun, so we were you know stuck in Sana'a. So what happened was that Habib Tahir ended up coming to the same masjid that we were at. This was a masjid that was associated with Dar Mustafa. And so Habib Tahir came there. And so I ended up, you know, staying with Habib Tahir. So like, for example, Habib Tahir gave me my first turban uh, in Yemen and he wrapped it for me and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, Habib Tahir was another individual. And Habib Tahir, he was definitely like, you know, one of those people who would give you subtle lessons so like how you tell here when i first got there i couldn't speak a lick of arabic like you know i didn't know what a jawas a safar was or you know a call or anything like you know i knew how to say assalamu alaikum kifahal you know just the bare minimal and so you know how you tell here you know he kind of you know unofficially like kind of took me under his wing so like when we finally arrived in tarim i remember one time i was in the souk I was in the uh, the marketplace, and Habib Tahir happened to see me, and I was, you know, and I was about to, you know, go back to Dar Mustafa, and Habib uh, Tahir asked me, you know, Ila Ain, you know, where are you going? And I said, you know, Dar Mustafa, I'm going to Dar Mustafa, and he's like, you know, 
تعال تفضل and like you know he was telling me to come in his car and uh, drive him so like you know I remember uh, some of my teachers saying how like you know in previous generations like instead of having rock stars you have dean stars and so like that's kind of how I kind of felt like you know like when Javi Tahir is asking you know telling me to come and you know Uh, drive with him to Darmusufa, even though the ride was only like two minutes and he lives like right across the street from Darmusufa, like I kind of felt like a rock star, like I'm sitting in the car with Habi Talher, like you know, it doesn't get much better than this. Uh, but you know, and I remember one time when like, you know, Habi Talher like, you know, really did something that kind of like I had to reflect about it afterwards is that I remember once we moved into Darmusufa, I had seen Habib Tahir in the hall and you know of course I went up to him and you know, I said Assalamu alaikum Habib how are you and so on and so forth and I was you know speaking better Arabic at this time so Habib Tahir what he started to do was that he started to ask me a whole bunch of questions about Dara Mustafa like you know he started asking me about you know the rooms like you know so where are you staying you know what class are you you know taking when is your class and, and so I'm saying all these things when I'm speaking Arabic to him like so I'm saying all these things and at the end of me talking he just sits there he just stands there and looks at me and just says mashallah and just smiles and then like you know I had to think about it after the fact I was like he wasn't asking me because he didn't know these things he was asking me to see you know, where I came in terms of like, you know, my Arabic, my studies and like, you know, so when he's seen that, you know, he just had a very sincere smile on his face and he just said, mashallah. And so like, you know, those are like the type of things that you really remember, like, you know, uh, you know, so like those are the type of things that kind of stuck out to me. You know, I'm, I remember even having, you know, and this is again one of the beautiful things about like being in a place like Tareem is that you know everyone is so close like you have access to everyone like I remember you know another time I kind of felt like a rock star is when Sheikh Yahya wrote us you know uh, I had access to talk to him and so you know Sheikh Yahya he had uh, uh, I was going to walk because Sheikh Yahya's house is actually like right around the corner from Dar Mustafa like I mean it's not much of a difference whether you walk or drive like it's that close Um, and so, but I remember there was a few of us, you know, talking outside of Don Mustafa while I was about to, you know, walk to Sheikh Yahya's house. And then all of a sudden, Sheikh Yahya pulls up in front of Don Mustafa and he's like, that, you know, and so like, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> he came to pick me up, mashallah. You know, he probably forgot that they even happened. But, you know, it's one of those things, those things that, you know, you, uh, You know, those kind of little things that, like, you know, your teachers or your, you know, senior students and things like that, like, teach you that have effects that, you know, I'll give you kind of, like, an insight of, like, not the aspect of, like, you know, the formal book knowledge, but actually how to actually be a human being. Like, so those are the things that, like, you know, really, you know, stood out to me. Uh, you know, those things where it's like, you know, you can, you know, like a very little insignificant thing to you but you know it can like mean a big deal to someone else and like you know the common story that's usually told about like you know where you know the habayib and the teachers and students kind of get those type of things is uh, one of the habayib who was very well known um, in Tadim um, he was leaving a gathering and while he was leaving um, uh, he was talking to one of the students And the student was trying to help him into the car and, you know, help his sheikh and so on and so forth. And it happened to be that Habib Ali al was with him. Uh, 
Um, and so the student, you know, helped the sheikh into the car. He closed the door for the sheikh. And then, you know, he continued to talk to the sheikh um, for, you know, a good amount of time, you know, while the sheikh was sitting in the car through the window. Um, and then after, you know, the student had finished, he drove off. And so after they drove off, the uh, the sheikh, uh, after they had kind of gone out of sight of the uh, of the school, the sheikh had asked the driver, you know, can you stop the car? And what the sheikh did was that once he stopped the car, he opened up the door and then closed it again. So Habib Adi Jifri had asked him, like, you know, sheikh, what's going on? And he said that uh, the student, when he closed the door, he closed my hand in on the door. But the thing is, is that the sheikh has such a, you know, the Habib has such a uh, concern of the feelings of his student that he didn't want his student to know that he had actually hurt him. And so he had suffered because, like, you know, if anyone's ever, like, you know, not everyone has had their hand slammed in the door, but I've had my hand slammed in the door, and that hurts. And so, but his concern for the feelings of the student was such that he would go through that pain, not just that his hand was stuck in the door, that he just, like, closed it in on him, but he actually sat there and talked to him for, you know, a good amount of time and didn't show any, you know, signs of, you know, him being in pain. And then when he finally drove out of sight, he, you know, let his hand be free. So, like, you know, that's, that's like a common story that you hear of, like, you know, where the adab and the etiquette and those type of things come from. And so those are the things that kind of, you know, stuck out to me. And so, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, people always try to kind of emphasize, you know, to you. Uh, is that, you know, you never know what it is that you're going to receive there that's going to be, like, you know, the biggest, you know, influence for you. And so, you know, that was kind of like one of the things that, I, you know, remember a lot is that, you know, those little little things that people can do that can actually mean, you know, a great deal, you know, to other people. Thank you for sharing those beautiful stories. Um, what was it like leaving and, and what were your plans coming back? <laughs> well, leaving, you know, there, uh, you know, with every good, there's, you know, you know, the opposites, you know, as well. So, like, you know, I had a lot of good experiences in team, but, you know, there were some, you know, problems that I was facing, different, you know, issues and things like that. So it came to a point uh, where it just seemed like, you know, I wasn't necessarily going to be able to maintain, you know, staying uh, in team, you know, for different reasons. And then the schooling um, became somewhat of an issue because Javi Omar had changed the... Uh, he had changed the program. So initially, um, to be in Dara Mustafa, you know, you just had to memorize from Surah Al-Duha and the Quran back and, uh, and just be an adult, essentially. Yeah. And so basically it was just like, you know, having a basic, you know, aspect of Quran memorized, which is really not much, you know, Surah Al-Duha back, that's not even, you know, half of Juz Amma. Um, but then Habi Hamar had changed it where you had to have the uh, half of Riyadh Salihin and half of the Quran memorized to stay in Dar Mustafa. If not, you'd be sent to one of the offshoot branches of Dar Mustafa. And I'm like, I'm okay in Tareem, but I don't know about these other places. And then, you know, my parents, like, you know, it was, you know, bad enough trying to convince them to let me come to Tareem, let alone let, them, let me tell them that I'm going into some, like, you know, 
you know, place where I can't even tell you where in Yemen or whatever the case may be. Because, like, I remember when I first got to Sana'a and because my parents, you know, this is where I get it from. My parents went in my whole itinerary. Okay, who's picking you up? Where are you going to be at? Where, do you, where are you going to go to? You know, when is your flight leave? And so, so I gave them all the information that I had, and, and none of that worked out. Like, you know, the person that picked me up was not the person that was supposed to pick me up. The place where I stayed was not the place I was supposed to stay. The time that I was supposed to get on the flight was not the time that I actually got on the flight. Like, you know, nothing actually went as planned. And so, like, when I got to the place that I was staying in Sanaa, my mother, I think it was my father, my father's asked me, okay, what's the address of the, of the place that you're staying? I'm like, what address? Like, you know, do you want me to say, the, you know, the masjid by the alley, uh, you know, next to the other road? Or like, yeah. So, like, you know, I'm, and then, of course, I don't speak Arabic, so I, didn't, I don't know how to say, you know, Enwan, you know, address. So I'm, like, trying to ask them, like, you know, where are we in, like... And, but the thing is that, you know, anyone that's ever been to Yemen or even some other places, you know that, you know, there, there literally is no address. Like, you know, if you went to Tarim, there's no street names or anything like that. You just say, you know, take me to so-and-so. So I can literally get into a cab and say, you know, take me to Dr. Andrew's house. And they would just drive me to Dr. Andrew's house. There was no address type of thing. So, like, my poor parents are just kind of like, you know, you know, they don't know what to do, so to speak. So again, like, you know, me telling them that I'll be going to like, you know, some other remote location in Yemen was just like, you know, not gonna happen. And so I was just like, okay, let me, you know, go back and then try to figure this out. So uh, I ended up uh, deciding that I was just gonna go back and, you know, not come back. Cause initially I had a round trip ticket that I was just gonna come back, visit and then go back. But then I had, you know, kind of decided that I was just going to come back and not necessarily go back to Tarim. Um, so my intention was, was that actually I was just not going to go back to Tarim, but I was going to find another place to go and study. Um, so I remember uh, I had told Habib Hashem, you know, how the, you know, you know, I forget exactly what I said in Arabic, but basically, I either said like, you know, how the Akhir, like this is my last day, or like, you know, Arju uh, uh, or I'm returning today or something. And you know, Habib, uh, so Habib Hashem naturally, you know, asked me like, you know, Mata you know, when you coming back? <laughs> and, and I had to tell him, I was like, Allah you Arju, know, I'm not coming back. And so Habib Hashem just looks at me, he's like. And so he like he just gives me a, you know a big hug, and then so I asked him to make du'a for me. And then uh, I talked to Habib Tahir. Habib Tahir, I told him like you know I'm leaving, and Habib Tahir said the same thing. But I told you, you coming back? And I said, Habib, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming back. And he said, you know, Lee Mada, you know why? Yeah. And so you know he gave me a hug, and then uh, I told Habib Omar because the thing is is that Habib Omar. Habib Omar was like, you know, if Habib Tahir and Habib Hashim were like rock stars to me, Habib Omar were like, you know, the, you know, in New Jersey, like, you know, they have like Bruce Springsteen, like the boss or whatever the case may be, like, you know, Habib Omar was even bigger than Bruce Springsteen or whoever. So like, you know, you didn't really get a chance to talk to Habib Omar, you know, uh, uh, directly often. So what I did was that after every uh, Fajr Salat, you always did the Tasneem where you would go around and you would shake everyone's hand. 
So what I did was that this particular day, because usually if you shake Habib Omar's hand, you would shake his hand and just keep walking. This time, I was like, all right, I'm going to shake his hand. So I shook his hand, and I just stood off to the side right next to him. <laughs> and I said, you know, Habib, you know, and I said, you know, you know, uh, and so I told you know Habib, I'm going, you know, I'm uh, going, I'm going back to my homeland. I'm going back to my homeland today. So Habib Omar says, you know, in a belt, you know, where's your homeland? And I said, America. He says, America. And so he says something to me. He says, you know, make your intentions, da'wah Allah. He says, you know, make your intentions for da'wah, you know, for calling people to Allah. And I didn't think much of it, you know, because you know. One of the big things in Dharma Mustafa is the aspect of da'wah. But after, you know, having coming back and, and studying more and so on and so forth, you know, what he was saying to me had so many different implications. Like, you know, there's a fiqh aspect to it. There's a tasawwuf aspect to it. There's, you know, a general nasiha aspect to it. Like, you know, I can do a whole lesson of just that one simple statement. Uh, but, you know, that's what he told me. You know, make my intentions, you know, da'wah to Allah. And so now, you know, as your question is, you know, referring to, I had to figure out, okay, well, what am I going to do when I get back? So my initial plan, like I said, was that I was going to come back and then try to figure out another place to go and study. Uh, so what I initially did is that when I came back, I started uh, looking for different, you know, possibilities, and then I was like, well, I'm going to need money. Um, you know, more money so um, what I did was that I seen that uh, I had some friends of mine that I knew who had uh, uh, went uh, and went to places like Kuwait um, and they were able to work like teaching English and stuff like that so I'm like well maybe I can do that so like I signed up for a teaching English as a second language course thing you know went through the whole program got my certificate and so on and so forth so I'm like you know because like one of the things that happened to me is that when I came back, I had like reverse culture shock. Because like it was like you know, I had been in the Muslim world and particularly like Yemen in particular. So like you know, I hadn't even seen like you know the face of a young woman in like you know, about a year or so. Uh, uh, you know, nor I hadn't seen a billboard or you know any of these type of things like you know even like when I had taken a trip to Dubai when I was there in uh, Yemen we had taken a trip to Dubai you know even then like you know it was still had a, like a more modest tone and so on and so forth so like I land in JFK and I'm going outside the airport in the heart of New York and I'm just kind of like oh my god like what is all this stuff that I'm looking at? And like, I, I, again, I had like reverse culture shock. So like, you know, like, because uh, the other part of me is just like, you know, I cannot stay in this godforsaken place. <laughs> like, you know, this is, you know, the, like the complete opposite of everything that I was just, you know, doing. So like I did the uh, English as a second language thing, but it just, you know, things just didn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, turning out the way I had hoped. And then I started to, you know, need money again. <laughs> so what happened was that uh, when I initially got back, um, I started to teach Arabic uh, to young kids. Um, that's one of the things that, you know, made me really understand that never should I try to teach young kids. <laughs> I love young kids. However, teaching them is not my forte 
And so the, I always tell people, like, you know, I've had, uh, you know, anytime that anyone asks me about teaching, I always, you know, like one of my prerequisites is that they have to be at least 13 or over. Like, you know, they have to be someone that can, you know, hold their attention and actually wants to be there. <laughs> um, but I started to do that. Um, and then, again, you know, money started to get tighter and tighter. Uh, and so I ended up getting an offer from the same job that I had left when I went overseas. So uh, I ended up taking that, and it was a it was a temporary position. So I was like, I was happy with that because I'm like, all right, it's a temporary position. I can just save up some money, and then I can go and do whatever else is going to be the case. Lo and behold, while I was working there, Sheikh Khalid Abdul Rashid comes back from Turkey. However, instead of going to Georgia, he goes to New York. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm, he's right next door. And the beautiful thing is, again, is that no one really knows who he is. So what happens is that I end up uh, going and studying with Sheikh Khalil. And it's great because it's like me and just like one other person. So I end up kind of having like, you know, private lessons with Sheikh Khalil. And like, you know, he kind of like refined some of the stuff that I already, uh, already, some of the stuff that I already learned. And then also he, again, the aspect of like, you know, having life lessons. Like I always mentioned to people, I was like, you know, I probably benefited more from the conversations we had outside the lesson than even like, you know, the things that we do in the lesson itself. So that, you know, happened. So I started studying with uh, Sheikh Khalil. At the same time, I contacted Ustad Jamal and Sheikh Muhammad uh, again, and I got them to agree to do some, you know, lessons with me as well. Uh, then all of a sudden, you know, marriage comes about. <laughs> so, you know, then I'm able to get married, and then, you know, Dr. Shadi comes to MBIC. And so initially, I start out, you know, studying with Dr. Shadi and then it goes from me studying to me teaching. <laughs> uh, and then um, I have opportunity to study with some of the other teachers that are around here. So, like, you know, I do the Bekonia with Dr. Abu Zaid, and, you know, we do Ibtida and Mu'amal, you know, from Khatiba uh, Baghdadi. Uh, so, so it's just like, you know, I just, all of a sudden I just get different opportunities to study while I'm still working full-time in corporate America. And then, all of a sudden, I get an opportunity to work as a chaplain in a prison. So, you know, just kind of like everything just starts to kind of like piece itself together, you know, so to speak. So, like, I end up not going back overseas. And, you know, uh, the saying that people always say is like, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Like, you know, at the time, like, you know, like, for example, when I first got back, I was like, God, I got to get out of America. I don't want to be here and so on and so forth. Then when I start working again, I'm just like, God, I got to get out of corporate America. I hate it and so on and so forth. But it's like, you know, now at this point in my life, I can kind of see like, you know, what was the purpose in some of those things? Like, you know, I remember uh, when I was still in Tareem, I had said to Habib Hashim, um, and of course, one of our conversations outside of class, I said to him that, like, you know, I was thinking of like moving to a place like Kuwait or something like that. And I remember how you Hashim just kind of looked at me with like, you know, this great look of like disgust, like, like why? 
like he's just like you know and the thing is that the funny thing is that my friend Atiba he um, after you know this was kind of like four or five years after I came back from Tareem but he had visited Tareem and he visited Habib Hashim as well and this is one of the things that you know I probably have no other thing that's probably made me happier uh, than when Atiba has said that he mentioned me to Habib Hashim and Habib Hashim has spoken highly of me like you know that was like you know you know that would, there's nothing else that you can say to me it's like you know if I have one of the family of the Prophet Muhammad that thinks highly of me like you know inshallah that'll you know help me on Yom Qiyamah but anyway uh, Atiba had visited Habib Hashim and Habib Hashim asked him you know where are you living and, and Atiba was living in Kuwait at the time and like you know Atiba said that you know he told him that he was living in Kuwait and he was like you know Habib Hashim just kind of gave him like you know this like just like you know this this look of disgust <laughs> and so it's like you know i i was like you know basically saying like yeah when i told him i had thought about moving to kuwait so now he gave me like that same look and kind of was like you know why would you do that but you know to kind of explain like why Habib hashim had that aspect is that after i told him that i was thinking about it how hashim has said to me because he again one of the main aspects of like uh, studying in Tareem is that they have what they call the maqasid uh, thalatha you know the three fundamental principles which is in knowledge suluk test you know meaning purification of the, of the heart and da'wah those are the three aspects and so the whole concept of Tareem is that no one is supposed to stay in Tareem is that the whole aspect of going to Tareem is that you go there you learn you better yourself you purify your heart but then you go back to wherever it is that you come from and you you know give the people what you receive while you're in Tareem so you know Habib Hashim was just like saying to me like you know you have a much better you know opportunity in America going back and teaching people about Islam and so on and so forth than going to a place like Kuwait where like you know you're not even you know a native you know you, you know you're not going to speak you know the language because anyone that's ever tried to study Arabic knows that you know Arabs do not speak Arabic the same way whatsoever like I can understand Yemenis you know a lot better than I can understand like people from Egypt or you know Palestine, Philistine or anything like that so like you know that was his big thing and so, like, you know, that's why I say, like, in hindsight, like, you know, I can see, like, you know, okay, you know, I'm, you know, in the Tiba, he kind of said, like, you know, and my wife will sometimes say this. I think my wife had actually said it in, like, a Tiba kind of, like, somewhat, like, mentioned a similar aspect is that, you know, he was saying, like, she would say, like, you know, it may be that, you know, Allah wanted you to go through this experience so that people, you know, can see someone that's gone through a similar experience in the sense that, you know, not everyone is necessarily going to be able to go overseas and study for, like, an extensive period of time of, like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years. But, you know, they can, you know, possibly, you know, be in a situation where they can, you know, do their studies, you know, even right here. And, you know, that's why I tell a lot of people, it's like, you know, actually the bulk of my studies, Islamic studies, you know, I was actually able to do, you know, a good portion of it here and even to a more advanced level than like, you know, just like, you know, the basics. Because a lot of times we think about like, you know, Islamic studies, we think like, well, if I do it here, I'm just going to learn like, you know, how to pray, how to make wudu and stuff like that. Like, you know, I want to. But no, if you're 
dedicated enough, like, yeah, you're gonna have to make some sacrifices. Like, you know, that's why I say, like, you know, my wife is like, you know, and you know, my wife uh, is a one of a kind type of situation, because you know, it works out for us because we're both we're both nerds, so to speak. Like, you know, when we first got married, like, you know, a great date to us was like going to Barnes and Noble and listening to Islamic lecture. Like that was like, you know, that was like, you know, a great, you know, date for us. But it works for us. Why? Because, you know, both of us are into studies. Like even right now, both of us are studying. Like right now I'm doing my master's degree with Bayan. My wife, she's doing um, her studies with Robota. Uh, and so on. So the thing is that, you know, it takes a good amount of our time to do that. And but we respectful of each other's, you know, desire to continue to study. And we're able to do that here. So it's just like, you know, I, I guess you could say like, you know, we're kind of like, you know, an example of like being able to actually, you know, do, a, you know, a higher level of Islamic studies, even if you don't necessarily get the chance to go overseas for an extended period of time. Like I would never trade in my time that I was in Tanim. Like, you know, it was, you know, a definitely you know, a great experience. But, you know, one of the things that has helped me because I had to work in corporate America and stuff like that is that I can relate to people um, in that type of experience where it's just like, you know, I didn't spend all my time just like, you know, in a madrasa setting or something like that. So that like, you know, for me, it's just like, you know, well, you know, I can always pray because I'm always at the masjid or like, you know, whatever case was like, no, I worked in corporate America. So like I've I've prayed in stairwells, I've prayed in empty offices, I've prayed outside, I've prayed, you know, in this place and that place. I've had the uncomfortable feeling of having to make wudu and I didn't bring my wudu socks and so now I gotta stick my foot in the sink and, you know, all these type of things. And so it's like, you know, I can relate to people. So like that even helps me like, you know, the things that I do with the Mecca Center. So like, you know, uh, like Saturday we had the Living Islam program. And so, like, you know, this is just people, you know, coming and uh, just talking about different aspects of Islam um, that is not a formal classroom setting. And so, like, you know, people were asking questions of, like, you know, well, what do you do, like, you know, if you're in an office and so on and so forth. So, like, I was able to give, like, my personal experience going through that. Or even, like, you know, other things of, like, you know, you know, shaking hands, you know, with the opposite sex and, you know, these type of things. And it's like, you know me having to have to go through that it helps in like you know the aspect of what i do now whereas like well now yes i am working in a more islamic you know type of environment and field and inshallah i pray that 10 years in corporate america is enough and allah won't make me have to go back but you know i see that it's kind of helped me in terms of like the things that allah has me doing at this point is that you know i can uh, relate to people even you know you know, this is something that Dr. Shadi likes to talk about, you know, often. The aspect of the Qadr of Allah SWT is that, you know, even, you know, for people when they're, uh, when they may be in a state of, you know, sin, so to speak, or things that are not necessarily the most pleasing to Allah, sometimes that in and of itself is something that Allah SWT wanted for that person in order for them to be able to relate. What I mean by that, you know, like, one of the primary examples, for example, is like, you know, someone like Malcolm X, you know, Malik Shabazz, you know, you can argue that, you know, Allah SWT made him go through those different stages of like being a pimp, being a burglar, going to prison and so on and so forth. But those things all shaped who he ended up becoming. 
And so, like, you know, even with me, like, working in the prison right now, it's like, you know, I can relate to some people in the prison more than, like, other people would. Uh, like, when people ask me about getting the job as a prison chaplain, I remember when I was sitting waiting for the interview, there was another individual who was also interviewing for the position. He was originally from Turkey. He had worked in a prison before, and he was, like, doing his master's and Ph.D. and these type of things. So, like, he's telling me all his credentials, and I'm just kind of looking at him like, I guess I won't be getting the job. <laughs> it's like... It's like you have more education, you've actually worked in a prison before, and so it's like, so like when I went in for my interview and they asked me like, you know, why should you get the job? And I just had the, you know, the only thing I could think to say is like, the only thing that I have above anyone else is that I know Newark. You know, I grew up around Newark, you know, so on and so forth. And so the thing is, is that, you know, I can relate to certain things that not many Muslims necessarily will be able to relate to. So, like, for example, I know gang members. I got family members who are gang members. I got family members that have been through the same prison that I work in right now. You know, I know family members that have been shot. I know, you know, I have family members, you know, who have been through all different aspects that, you know, not not many Muslims necessarily would necessarily have to go through. So what does that do? It allows me to relate to them, you know, in that capacity. And, you know, it's kind of, again, similar to that aspect of, like, you know, the Maddox Shabazz type of thing. It's like, yeah, it wasn't necessarily, you know, the way that I got that experience. Like, you know, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, tell someone to go through that. But in the present time, you know, it helps me to be able to relate to, you know, different situations now. And alhamdulillah, they gave me the position. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, so that's kind of like, you know, been my process uh you know, once I returned, uh, it's just kind of like, you know, as as Allah says, you know, Allah plans and we plan and Allah is the best of planners. Yeah, for a while I was like, you know, there's no way I'm going to stay living in America. <laughs> but now I've kind of come to the point of like Sheikh Yahya is like, you know, well, if there was going to be a place I lived outside of America, it'd probably be Yemen. <laughs> and that'd be about it. But, you know, so Alhamdulillah. Uh, I want to come back to the prison chaplaincy, but I just have one quickish question first. I just have to ask because you initially said that your life turned you down, but like, what changed? <laughs> so my wife, you know, she'll always kind of say like, you know, she didn't actually turn me down. But what happened was that before I had decided, like, you know, definitively, I'm going to go and study overseas. I had thought about the concept of getting married. Even when I was in college, I had thought about the concept of getting married. Um, uh, but I just remember, like, when I was in college, it was just going to be very hard. So there was a sister in college that I was considering marrying. And we actually went through some processes. Like, you know, I had gone and met her family. She had talked to my mother, you know, so on and so forth. And, but I remember when I had talked to my father about even the concept of getting married, my father's like, don't think about it until you're 25. <laughs> and I was pretty much like the end of the conversation. I was just kind of like, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> but it ended up that it didn't work out. But even while I was, you know, considering marrying that particular sister, my friend Atiba was still telling me, it's like, you know, keep your options open. <laughs> and because he was telling me about uh, who turned out to be my current, you know, my wife at, at this point. Um, so what happened was that after I graduated from college, 
I uh, have thought about you know the possibility of getting married. So when Atiba, um, uh, uh, his wife at the time, um, she went and approached my current wife, and she you know just asked her in general like you know are, are you interested in getting married right now? And my wife was just like no, I'm not interested in getting married right now. But you know so and so you know may be interested. Uh, and so she suggested another sister. So like that's why I say like you know initially she turned me down, uh, you know, but it was more or less like you know she wasn't interested in getting married at all. Uh, and so eventually after I had uh, come back from uh, overseas, uh, and then I had a, a health scare at one point. Uh, they were testing me for cancer of all things. And so, like you know, that was like you know, like kind of like a kind of uh, I guess if you want to put it like you know a reevaluation of sorts. Because at first I was like, even when I first got back, I was just like, you know what, I'm just not going to get married, you know, anytime soon. I'm just going to work on my studies and you know stuff like that. I was studying with Sheikh Khalil, studying with Stad Jamal. I was taking uh, some courses online and so on and so forth. So I was like, I was just going to you know just focus on that, not worry about getting married. Then I get this, you know, cancer scare. So like the whole time I'm like going to a, a, a cancer doctor, and most of the people in there are like 60 plus, and I'm like 20 something. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, Ya Allah, like you know, is this you know pretty much like going to be the end? And the thing that I, that stuck out to me while I was sitting there with these you know 60 plus you know, other patients is that uh, they were talking about like, you know, their grandchildren and their children and their, you know, their spouses and so on and so forth. And like, I'm sitting here thinking like, you know, I might have cancer and may never experience any of that. And it just kind of like, it's like, yeah, I actually, I do want to have a family. And so that, that kind of like, and I remember I told uh, Atiba this, I was like, look, if I come out of this and I don't have cancer and, and you know, Allah will bless my life, it's like, yeah, definitely, I would definitely be looking for a wife. And so it just so happened that, alhamdulillah, I did not have cancer. Um, and it just so happened that my wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, but, you know, she's my wife now, was also in a point in her life where she was, you know, ready to get married. And so it just kind of worked out, you know, actually what happened was that uh, when I called my friend Atiba, his wife at the time, she had uh, said that uh, she had a message for me. So I actually, you know, so Atiba was like, you know, my wife has a message for you. I'm like, what's her message? She said, my wife says, when are you going to stop playing the single role and marry her friend? <laughs> so, so I was like, you know what, you know, let's see what happens. And actually at first, I didn't think it was going to go anywhere because it didn't seem like it was going to really work out. And then all of a sudden, I get a call or a text message, one of the two from Atiba, and he's like, yo, her mother just asked me for your phone number. She's going to call you. I was like, okay, maybe it is going to happen. <laughs> and so that started the process of me finally marrying my wife. But yeah, initially she turned me down because of the uh, <laughs> she just wasn't interested in marriage at all. So, But I always just like to you know, kind of joke with her like you know you initially turned me down <laughs> that's a good story <laughs> how did you end up applying for the role of a prison chaplain and why did you want to pursue it um 
actually chaplaincy was always something that was kind of like in the back of my mind as being like you know a path that I can go into because um, like when my, fr- my father initially had asked me like you know what was I going to do like when I came back um, from um, from studying overseas and stuff like that I had one of the things that I mentioned to him was like, you know, I was thinking about, you know, going to chaplaincy. And actually, my initial plan was actually to try to go to the Harvard Seminary because um, I had uh, met uh, Imam Khalid Latif from NYU. And, you know, I had talked to him. Uh, and so, like, chaplaincy kind of seemed like a, a viable position, you know, to try to go into. Um, but also what started to happen as well, you know, that was kind of like my initial thought process, like even from the beginning of like, you know, chaplaincy being a, a possibility. Second was that I just, I never really had an inclination to do an imam type of situation because I knew, you know, different people who were in imam positions and stuff like that. And you hear all the horror stories about being an imam and I just did not want to go through that. Not to mention the kind of, uh, I mean, if you want to be honest, you know, having an imam position, you know, particularly initially when you first come into a community, you know, that is a really a shaky time because if the community decides that, you know, well, we don't think this is a good fit or whatever case may be, you're out of a job. And the thing is, is that, you know, as my uh, brother-in-law would say, is that, you know, you know, oftentimes when you're working in a religious sphere, people always want you to do things free CBD la. Like, you know, it's not, no, you don't mean fee CBD la, you mean free CBD la. It's like, you know, it's not, you know, because the thing is, like, it's almost as if people forget, like, you know, imams have families. They have rent. They have bills. So, like, I never wanted to go through the imam, you know, problems. Um, and then there was just, like, you know, limited options. Like, you know, yeah, you have some people, like, you know, uh, like, you know, uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf or, you know, Sheikh Faraz Rabani and so on and so forth. But it's like... When, Whenever you kind of like have like you know like those kind of like you know superstar you know uh, uh, teachers and scholars and you know, imams and stuff like that, there are probably about a hundred that no one knows about, uh, and so like you can't really you know kind of bet on that so to speak. Um, so what happened was that um, one of the things I started to notice because and really what happens like like my first position of like really working in an Islamic type of setting was me working at the Mecca Center. And also, I started doing Juma khutbas. Like, I would do, you know, Juma khutbas at different places. I, at one point, I was actually on a rotation. So, like, I was doing a Juma khutbah once a month in New York, once a month at in Newark, New Jersey, and then another time, uh, no, I think it was twice in Newark, and another time, I was think I was down at Old Bridge in New Jersey. So, like, I was, like you know, uh, doing rotation. And the thing that I started to notice is that when people ask a question, and this is something that, you know, me doing my master's now is one of the things that they mention in chaplaincy um, very heavily, is that when people ask a question, a lot of times it goes beyond the aspect of, like, the outward form of religion. When What I mean by that is, like, you know, a lot of times, especially from a Muslim perspective, we look at things a lot of times just from a level of fiqh, like is it halal, is it haram? And a lot of times people will ask a question in that type of framework, but really what they're asking is something a lot deeper. And so what happens is that like you can't necessarily just give a generic answer of like, you know, oh, well, the Prophet said this, 
or the, the, the fix says this or whatever. It's like, no, these are people who actually are like they're in need of, you know, an aspect of counseling and so on and so forth. And what I started to realize is that no matter what your position is in the Muslim community, if you're looked at as being a teacher, an ustad, an imam, a sheikh, whatever, people are going to come to you with all these different things. Like, you know, people like, you know, you said, uh, I mean, they're all like, you, you, you know, I remember like Imam Salaj Wahaj, you know, he would say like, you know, you, you know, you be, I don't remember if he said you be amazed, but like, you know, you don't know the different things that people will come to a teacher or imam or something like that with like you know you're dealing with you know divorce issues you're dealing with uh adultery issues you're dealing with you know children you know issues you're dealing with abuse you know so on and so forth and these people are coming to you and you're looking for like you know someone to help them and you can't just keep saying like you know just be patient like you know that you know that only goes but so far so as I was working with the Mecca Center, doing the Juma Khutbahs and stuff like that, working, you know, eventually working uh, as a teacher with Safina Society, and like people coming to me asking me these different questions so on and so forth, you know, it, you know, I, you know, I started to kind of like unofficially develop better skills in terms of dealing with people because then, you know, because this was kind of like a new thing to me, so to speak, I would be calling my teachers and asking them like. Someone just asked me this, what do I tell them? Like, you know. And then at the same time, I had another um, person that I knew, uh, Imam Rasul Saluki. He's actually retired um, from pr the prison. And he would um, occasionally tell me, like, you know, for example, you know, there's an opening at the, uh, in the prison, you know, so on and so forth. So this is actually my second time trying to get a position with, uh, in the prison chaplaincy. Because again, I hated corporate America. Like you know, I just I, I just felt like I I never fit in. Like you know, you know people like especially like in my last job before I came into chaplaincy. Like you know, they would have like you know a happy hour like once a month, and you know they would have like this you know big party that everyone had to attend like you know every year, and then like you know in between like you know you have people saying like it just got to the point it's just like. Does everyone just drink alcohol and that's it? You work and drink. That's what, and like being a Muslim is just kind of like I can't do none of that. And or like you know they're talking about you know you know their relationships outside of marriage and stuff. I'm like like I can't even have you know. So I just always just felt like you know I'm out of place. So like I was always you know, like looking for the opportunity. So Imam Saluki, he actually um, told me. Uh, about a position um, for chaplaincy uh, in the prison. And I'm just kind of like, you know, what are my chances? Like, I don't have any prison experience, you know, so on and so forth. Lo and behold, two days after my interview, I get a call from them saying that we want to offer you the position. I'm like, wait a minute, what? But the issue was is that it took another three and a half months before I could actually start. <laughs> and the problem was, is that they had contacted my current employer. Uh, and even though I told them on the forum not to, they still did anyway. So my current employer found out that I would, 
the, that I had gotten this position and I planned to leave. And so, like, my current employer kind of was like, well, if you're going to go anyway, then, you know, we'll just, <laughs> you know, send you on your way. So there was a good, from May until July of 2018, it was very difficult, <laughs> uh, you know, because I had to wait, you know, for them to finally give me a, a, a start date. Uh, so, but that's how I, you know, ended up uh, starting to work at the prison. <laughs> what are some of the main issues people come to you with? In the prison? Yeah. Or, okay. Because uh, the prison world and the, I hate to say it that way, but the prison world and the outside world are like two different, two different beasts, so to speak. In the prison, in the prison, uh, I guess one of the, you know, you have some of the same issues that you would face, like, you know, even if you weren't in prison. So one of the things that kind of struck me that was a little interesting is, like, when I first started working at the prison was how many inmates were trying to get married. <laughs> it's just, and I was just kind of, like, sitting him, like, especially, like, you know, when you have someone that, like, has a significant time left. Like, I remember I was talking to one inmate and he was talking to me, like, you know, saying that he wanted to get married. He was, you know, trying to, you know, facilitate with, you know, a sister that he had found out about or whatever it case may be. And, like, we're talking. I'm like, you know, and how much time you got left? He's like, I got 17 years left. I'm, just, I'm like, wait, what? You got 17 left? So, so like, but that is, like, a big thing in prison. And the, th the thing is, is that many of them are getting married. So there are some women, there are some sisters out there that are, you know, willing to wait, or so they say. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so you get you know, a good amount of things about marriage. And within marriage, uh, because a lot of the inmates, um, they convert to Islam um, in prison or, like, right before they come to prison or whatever the case may be. So you get a lot of issues. Like, I get a lot of questions about, you know, raising their children when their mother is not Muslim. Um, so you get a lot of, you know, those type of questions um, of like, you know, how should I, you know, what should I do with my, you know, with my daughter or my son, you know, when her, when their mother is not Muslim. Like, you know, basically the main thing is like they're trying to ask me like, you know, how can I get my child to be Muslim? Uh, that's another question. But one of the, uh, one of the bigger ones in terms of like, the problems that the inmates face is actually when they're close to getting released. That is uh, that is a time where, like you know, many inmates kind of uh, have a lot of anxiety, and uh, it's a time where you know some will actually get into more trouble and things like that. Um, and the, the the aspect of it is is that for some of these guys, like you know, uh, you know, some like you know. You know, I had one inmate um, who got out um, about three weeks or so ago. He did about 14 years uh, in prison. But the thing is that, you know, 14 years in prison, and then prior to that, you know, he was back and forth in prison and so on and so forth. So 14 years in prison, his, you know, previous, you know, record of being in and out of prison, like, you know, and now in his this last period, um, he had become Muslim. This is only your first time, you know, leaving, becoming Muslim, uh, being Muslim. And so, like, you know, he's, you know, scared to death. You know, I'm hoping that everything works out for him. But, you know, you get a lot of uh, situations like that where it's like, you know, 
uh, you know, I'm getting out. Like I have one inmate, he's getting out the last day of February. Either the last day or the second to last day, either the 28th or the 29th. I think it's the 28th, though. And one of his big things was that he was trying to, you know, have me put him in contact with someone that can help him in his transition out. The problem is, is that in the Department of Corrections, I can't have contact with an inmate once they leave the prison. The Department of Corrections does not allow that. So... You know, I have to be very careful about, you know, how I would do this. And so the thing is, is that, you know, he's just very worried about, you know, when he comes home. Like, you know, because, like, he, you know, always says to me, it's like, you know, it's just so easy for him to go back to the things that he used to do that got him to prison. He's like, you know, I know it's going to be no problem doing that. But he's like, I'm, just, you know, essentially he's tired of just, you know, being in prison. And so, like, you know... That's probably, if I had to say, like, you know, what is one of the biggest concerns that inmates have, that is definitely, you know, one of the biggest concerns of, like, what am I going to do when I get out of prison? And uh, and then just, you know, a sense of, like, you know, the struggle between do I want to fully commit to Islam, but at the same time, like, you know, not, f you know, fully having left, like, you know, the street life. And the thing is that, the prison environment is not conducive for Islam. I mean, uh, anything and everything can happen in prison. So it, uh, you know, it becomes very hard. It's one thing, like, you know, if you can just try to keep to yourself and just, like, you know, uh, be on your own. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily work for everyone. And, you know, the aspect of violence in prison is that violence is you know very real and sometimes you may have to defend yourself you know it's just a situation of like you know uh, you may have to go to that route and that can you know play a role in you know whether or not for example you get parole or something like that uh, because for example if I get into if you get into a fight in prison and you end up getting uh, discipline for it. It's just like, you know, like in public school. It's like, you know, if you get into a fight in public school, whether or not you're defending yourself, both of you get suspended. Similar concept in prison where, you know, now you can start to argue more about, you know, the prison industrial complex in America. That's another conversation. But, you know, but, but that what happens is like, for example, if I go for parole and they see on my, you know, sheet that, you know, I have this violent, um, this you know, act of violence. My parole officer is not necessarily going to sympathize with me that you know I was defending myself. All they're going to see is that I got into a fight. Um, and so you know, so the inmates are kind of like you know trying to navigate this aspect of survival in prison, but at the same time you know trying to you know uh, you know be uh, be Muslim. Those are the ones that are sincere. The, the thing is, is that you do have some uh, people who may use Islam in prison for their own, um, you know, for their own different, you know, benefits, because there are some benefits from a prison's perspective for, you know, identifying as Muslim, but Allah knows best what's in people's hearts. But, uh, you know, so these are some of the issues that you get, um, from inmates and then you get you know other things like you know after, you know uh, other inmates have asked me about you know business you know, you know business ideas they have and stuff like that and so you know 
the the thing is is that every facility is unique. My facility is unique in that it's a highly gang um, oriented facility. And also, these are individuals who more than likely are going to be able to get out at some point in time. Where, whereas with other facilities, it's different. Like if you go to Trenton, you know, for the most part, you have to have like at least 40 years in order to be in Trenton. So like, you know, most of the guys there, they're not even thinking about going home. And so like their, you know, situation is different than like, you know, some of the guys that I'm dealing with here. But... In my facility, these are some of the common ones. Last question. You'd mentioned at a talk you gave at NBIC a few weeks ago, you hoped for more Muslims to volunteer in prisons. Why do you think that need goes unfulfilled, and what are the opportunities for volunteering? Um, to answer that question, I have to be honest. <laughs> and being honest isn't always, you know, the, uh, I don't want to say nice, but it's like, you know, it's not always the easiest thing to swallow. Um, I'll start with the prison itself. One of the reasons why we don't necessarily have as many Muslim volunteers is that the prison inmates themselves, the Muslim inmates, they can be very rough. And what I mean by rough, I don't mean like, you know, physically, like, you know, attacky type of rough, but they can be rough in the sense that um, these are individuals who, for many of them, they've always had to live a life of, uh, of aggression and of like, you know, uh, not showing any sense of backing down or things like that. So when a volunteer may come in and they're talking about Islam in a way that is not, you know, the way that they, you know, perceive Islam to be, you know, they can, you know, you know show you that, you know, kind of very uh, directly. And uh, so, like, for example, when I even first started, like, I had some inmates tell me, like, you know, you know, I hope you have thick skin. <laughs> type of like you know or like you all go say things like you know this is a tough crowd that you got to deal with um so that's one of the aspects another aspect is that you know many people you know and these even goes for myself you know uh in, in different ways is that you know it's one of those things like you know out of sight out of mind type of thing Whereas that, you know, many, you know, Muslims are not necessarily even thinking about the aspect of, you know, what's going on in prison, you know, so it just becomes a thing like, you know, we never even think to do that. A third aspect is that we don't really have as much awareness about the aspect of prison. Like, you know, probably prison in Islam didn't really become more, you know, uh, you know, more, you know, talked about so to speak until like you know Taba Foundation came about and even with Taba is as you know you know may Allah SWT continue to reward them in the efforts that they're doing but you know even with Taba uh, a lot of their activities is more or less again from the online perspective so it's not necessarily fully about uh, Muslims actually going into the prison per se but a lot of it is like you know um, um, what's the term that they use um online learning and things of that nature, distance learning. Um, and then, you know, some people just have a natural fear of prison. Like, you know, uh, like for example, there was a, there was a thought of having um, some, uh, some sisters to volunteer at the women's prison here in New Jersey. And like, you know, some of them were like told by their husbands, no, you're not going to do that. And, you know, so, so like, you know, there's even like, you know, just like the general fear of like, you know, going into prison. Like, you know, that's, uh, 
uh, something. So, and then, like, you know, in other situations, like, you know, because I could look at it from the other side as well, some individuals who would possibly be willing to go into the prison and probably could be a good uh, fit for volunteers and so on and so forth can't because, for example, they have, you know, previous uh, uh, criminal convictions and things like that. So you have that, you know, situation that happens as well. And so there's, you know, these different aspects. And then also there's the, you know, time frame. Because in prison, everything has to be done um, in specific times. And so for some people, they just don't have the time. Like, you know, many people, they'll work like a nine to five and things like that. So unless they're willing to come to volunteer, you know, in the evening, you know, like from six to eight or something like that, you know, they're not necessarily going to be able to come like from eight to ten to volunteer or something like that. So, like, there are a lot of different variables, but I think one of the main aspects of it is just that we haven't really pushed it out there, and I'm, you know, going to be the first one to put it on myself because, you know, I've had intentions of uh, having one of my friends that I went to middle school with, like, you know, I've known him for over 20 years. He was the first Hafiz of Quran that I knew. Um, I've been, you know saying that I'm going to give him the volunteer sheet to fill out so that, you know, I can get him to come in and volunteer. And I still haven't given him the sheet yet, you know. So, like, you know, it's, you know, one of those things where a lot of times it's just not talked about. And then, again, there's also, you know, the stigma, you know, with prison and of itself. And and the thing is that, you know, if I were to be honest, yeah, it's not going to be easy. Like, you know, Prison is a rough environment. Like, you know, I actually feel bad of the presentation that I gave at uh, MBIC before because I feel like, you know, I made it seem like, you know, the inmates are just like, you know, uh, or like the inmates are like, you know, all bad or whatever the case may be. And the thing is that it's really not, you know, it's just, it's not one set aspect. Like, you have some really good people there who are inmates in prison. But the thing is, is that their environment is like, you know, so toxic that is just really hard. That's why it's like, you know, I commend like some of the inmates. Like I remember we were in a class one time and there was a, some tension that had started um, with two of the inmates. They're both Muslim. One was younger, one was older. And, um, and this was like the only time that I've ever kind of been in a situation where I was somewhat feared that it might go, you know, to the ultimate level. But the older Muslim, um, and when I say older, he was just older than the other one. Um, but, you know, he's probably no more than, like, you know, in his early 40s, if that. And he's an individual who has actually, uh, you know, committed murder. So, like, you know, and, you know, he has, you know, a violent tendency. And I've seen his response. And he, you know, just responded in a calm manner. He's just like, you know, let him say what he's going to say. You know, go ahead. And like, you know, and like, you know, but the way that he was coming across from him was like, you know, if this had been maybe like 10 years earlier, it would have, you know, it would have definitely, you know, gone to a physical altercation. But like me seeing that, I'm just like, that's Islam. Like, you know, this individual who I know has the capability, has the, uh, the mindset and so on and so forth to actually, like, you know, possibly kill this individual from his standpoint of trying to, you know, be a better Muslim, him being able, and this is in front of other inmates and so on and so forth, him being able to bring himself to a point of, like, you know, now, like, you know, that is, like, you know, 
the epitome of like you know, you know, teski of you know, discipline this, uh, discipline the nafs. So, but the thing is, is that you know, these things do exist, and so you know, it is a you know, difficult environment. And yes, there are inmates who may try to cause you some type of harm or may try to swindle you or something. And again, when I say harm, I don't necessarily mean like physical harm. Like, you know, you're more likely for an inmate to try to manipulate you to like bring something in for them or something like that. More, way more than you are to have them try to actually physically, you know, accost you. Like you would really have to like go above and beyond have an inmate try to actually physically harm you. Uh... But, you know, and again, so th there is an aspect of difficulty, but, you know, it is something that I feel is needed more that, you know, to go in. Because, again, in my facility alone, you know, the Muslims make up the largest religious body of all of the religions. And eventually these individuals are going to get out. And so it's kind of, you know, similar to what I heard one of the inmates who was uh, in prison in uh, California say it's like you know do you want for when these individuals get out to come and be a productive member of society or do you want them to go back to what they used to do like that's why I mentioned the story of one of the inmates that I knew that you know he was in prison now for robbery he, he committed right here in New Brunswick so it's like you know it's not to say that they're just going to be you know off you know somewhere where you're not going to have to worry about they can some of them are right here, you know, and, you know, in your backyard, so to speak. And so I feel that, you know, it is needed, but I just feel like, you know, we have to kind of make a greater push. And I, I think part of the issue is that, you know, we haven't, um, you know, Islam in and of itself is still kind of like, you know, growing in America. And so, like, you know, we're dealing with, you know, the issues that we're facing, like, you know, just, you know, trying to be Muslim in America, like we haven't gotten to the point of like, you know, being a Muslim inmate in America. And so, you know, hopefully we can, you know, start to, you know, get to that point. Because that's why I said, like, you know, even from the standpoint, like it doesn't even necessarily have to be religious. Like, you know, even from the standpoint of like, you know, tutoring or counseling or, you know, any of these type of things, you know, like just for them to see, you know, Muslims, you know, that are, you know, assisting, you know, uh, to come into the, because the thing is that, you know, for all intents and purposes, the inmates, they have a great respect for volunteers. And the reason why that is, is because they understand that these are people, they're not getting anything out of it. So it's like, you know, if you come and volunteer at a prison, you're truly doing that on your own accord. And so like, you know, there's a greater respect that's given for a person that actually does that. And, you know, and I just, you know, I just think it would be beneficial even for a person to, that is volunteering just to kind of like see that like working in the prison like there's no way like that's why I said it when I talked about it in the, the lecture before is that working in prison is uh, you can't understand it unless you've actually been in it like like even the things that I mentioned it's like you can't like like it's, it's just its own environment and you know, again, it has its, it's hard to say that it has its good, because the only reason why you can say that it has its good is the aspect of, like, what I mentioned, is, like, when you see an inmate and they are truly working on themselves. But other than that, like, the environment outside of that is, I'm be honest, is horrible, horrible. Like, you know, 
I don't need to actually go to prison to like you know not ever wanting to be in prison like you know that's why like I gave that example initially it's like you know just imagine living in your bathroom and having a you know a roommate that you can't choose and having to you know be locked in there for you know 16 hours a day like you know how long before you kind of lose your mind you know and this is what they have to do for you know I know guys they got 30 years I know some guys you know I was looking at some guys I'm like he's been in here longer than I've been alive this one inmate that was just diagnosed with lung cancer and he's been in prison since 1984 and I remember I was talking to the doctor and she had told me that uh, he had cancer that he had lung cancer and I was an aggressive form of lung cancer so I asked her I was like you know so what are we talking about? What stages is it in? Like, you know, are we talking about, like, you know, he'll be able to overcome and, like, you know, it'll just take years from the, you know, and she was saying, like, you know, you know, with this aggressive form that he has, it's like, you know, he maybe have a couple of months. And I was just like, wow. And I had told her, I was like, you know, you know, he just told me not too long ago that, you know, he pretty much had just come to the conclusion that he was going to die in prison. And it's like, and then like, you know, he gets, you know, diagnosed with an aggressive form of lung cancer, you know, but like, you know, and the thing is that, you know, he also doesn't have anybody like he's been, you know, locked away since 1984. So you can imagine like, you know, even the family that he did have, like, you know, you're talking about over 30 years ago. So like, you know, they've gone on and had, you know, have their lives and so on and so forth. So like, you know, even having someone that, you know, has some type of, you know, concern, you know, for them or anything like that, you know, you know, can be of benefit. So, you know, this is why, you know, I had said, like, you know, I think it'd be, you know, definitely beneficial, you know, for Muslims in general to, you know, if they are able to, you know, to reach out, you know, to, you know, the the prison because, you know, these are individuals, a lot of, a lot of them, it's not that they're quote unquote bad, or, you know, they're bad people. A lot of them just have had, you know, very traumatic experiences throughout their lives. And they're, you know, trying to figure out how to, you know, function in that. You know, the, the aspect for many of them is, is that, you know, if we ourselves are put in those same situations, the outcome will be the same. And so, you know, they're individuals who a lot of times they just need a different way of seeing things. You know, and even, you know, you know, this classic saying, like, you know, everyone in prison is innocent. <laughs> I actually had one inmate, you know, he was jokingly telling me this, you know, because, you know, you know, one of the things that people sometimes get surprised with me when I tell them this is that actually most inmates that I encounter will admit that they've committed whatever crime that they've been convicted of, whatever the case may be. There's only a few that will just say that like, they're completely innocent. So, like, I had one inmate, you know, say to me, you know, in the aspect, because, one of the things that you do see a lot in prison is a lot of judgmental uh, aspects. And so, like, you know, the inmate was jokingly telling me, he was like, you know, he's like, don't you know, we're all in here, we're all in here because we recited the Fatiha too loud. <laughs> you know, and, but he was saying that, like, you know, saying to, to say, like, you know, we all kind of like, you know, meaning the inmates, like, you know, we all, you know, uh, kind of try to think of ourselves as like, you know, not having done what we did, but, you know, in reality, that's what we did. But, 
you know, but many of them, again, they've had traumatic experiences and they haven't necessarily had a means of seeing or knowing about something different. So, like, if people are able to bring them something different that they could possibly, you know, do or another way of thinking and so on and so forth, that can be beneficial. One of the things I would say in terms of the aspect of volunteering, though, is that, and this is something that, you know, I've experienced, you know, more and more, is that, you know, we can't, you know, uh, you can't expect to save everyone. <laughs> you know, that's, you know. And anyone that deals with any type of aspect of like, you know, counseling or, you know, uh, social work, anything like that, you know, this is something that, you know, you just find out is that, you know, there are some that, you know, they're just going to go, you know, in a particular direction and there's no one that can do anything besides Allah. And so like, you know, that's something that, you know, you have to keep in mind as well. It's like if you're going to volunteer, you know, don't expect that you're going to come in and like, you know, be like, you know, this great change and like, you know, you know, alhamdulillah, you know, if, you know, if you can change a large amount, you know, that's great. But even if you could just change one, that's an accomplishment because, you know, again, the environment itself is just not conducive to, you know, quality of life. It's, you know, it it's horrible. Like, you know, I would tell anyone, like, you know, if you think about committing a crime, just go on a prison tour. You know, just, <laughs> On a prison tour, and you know, you tell me like I remember the first time that I went through what they call administrative segregation. Like, if you get in trouble in prison, this is where they send you. I remember the first time I went through there, I was just kind of like, oh my god, like you know, it was, you know, it was horrible. Like you know, the things like you know, because inmates are like yelling across from each other, and like you know, they're not you know yelling like you know, hey, what time is it? Like no, they're they're yelling things that I can't say on the podcast. <laughs> you know so on and so forth or you know you'll experience you know you know things that are like you know just again things that i can't say on the podcast like just like the nature of this like all these type of things have, i mean you know inmates have told me like you know that you know like one inmate told me that you know he was uh sleeping in his in his room and his monkey was sleeping on the top bunk and his monkey started to od off of k2 which is like, you know, the new, like, you know, strong form of drug, and it's very prevalent in the prison. He said his roommate started to OD off of K2 and, like, started going to devotions and stuff like that, ended up throwing up on him and, you know, so on and so forth, and he had to try to get the officer's attention, you know, to, you know, keep him from dying. You know, another inmate told me that, you know, there was someone who was uh, on their tier, on their uh, their section of the of the housing unit and he was tripping out on K2 and he was like banging his head against the wall, you know, until his head started bleeding and stuff like that. So it's like, if you, if this is something you're seeing on a regular basis, like what does that do to your, you know, mental and emotional state? So again, like, you know, if we have people that can help in any capacity, if it's just sitting there, because again, you have a lot of you know Christian uh, volunteers that come, and some of them they don't necessarily have any specialty, but they'll just sit and talk, and you know so on and so forth. And again, the inmates, you know, they appreciate it. I mean, again, some of them, you know, they're not necessarily going to you know like you, but you know, that's with anything that you do. And so you know, you know, hopefully, you know, I can do a better job at you know trying to you know convince people like even with Dr. Shadi I was supposed to give him a volunteer form so maybe I could bring him in one day and do a khutbah or something like that and I can get a break <laughs> but you know uh, 
but you know hopefully like you know those of us that work in the prison and you know coupled with you know people who you know have that um that can that, that aspect i don't because you know compassion works on different levels i'm not saying that a person that doesn't want to volunteer in a prison doesn't have compassion but like meaning that a person that has that compassion particularly for going into a prison hopefully we can you know start to bridge the gap a little bit thank you so much thank you for showing so much of your life i'm sorry for uh, taking so long <laughs>